This episode contains references to suicide and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. They came and made an announcement in the test that something had happened, and we finished the test and then were just sent back to our rooms. This is former Marine Raider and Special Operations Officer Zach Riggle. It was just kind of standby. They weren't really sure what was going to happen or what they might need us for. It's 2001. Zach is a recent college grad in the final stretch of officer training at Quantico. He was in the middle of taking an exam when American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon just 30 miles away. Zach was eventually called into active service and was deployed first to Iraq, then to Afghanistan. My job for a few of those years was targeting specifically figuring out who the bad guys were, what they had done, where they were, and how to get them. Zach started out as a believer in the American experiment, as he calls it. He was far-sighted and idealistic, but as the war on terror ground on, the focus narrowed. The peacekeeping aims winnowed down to keeping the guys to your left and your right alive. Zach was good at it, and fortunate. None of his Marines were killed under his watch. But after 11 years and four combat deployments, Zach felt he'd had enough of military service. He came home, and at first, the future looked all right. He enrolled in a business degree at MIT. He was heading in a new direction. But then three months into the program, his best friend from service was killed in the field. I never lost a Marine in all my deployments and all my time. And the one time, you know, that I'm not there, this happened. It was a profound blow. But Zach carried on. He got a job at a boutique firm. He wore nice suits, lived in Manhattan. But inside, he was starting to unravel. Theoretically, he was safe, but he couldn't convince his mind and body that the traumas of the battlefield were over. How do you tell your mind, once you're out of there, that it's okay to relinquish that state of vigilance? When you're exposed to these things, like you're your brain's not as surgical all the time as you might like for it to be. And so if it doesn't want to remember certain things, it kind of tends to just shut off a block instead of just that one little thing you don't want to remember. I don't remember the names of a lot of my Marines, guys that worked for me, guys that were there with me every day or close friends I had during those times because I'm trying to forget the targets and the bad stuff. um, And it just all goes away with that. He became anxious. Social interactions were a challenge. It was hard to focus. Things kind of continued to deteriorate to the point where I developed a speech impediment. I was no longer a major Marine Raider with all these combat deployments and the guy that had all the answers. He left his job and slipped into despondency. He started drinking heavily, then using drugs, shooting up. And then his brother, who was also an addict, died. Another death that plunged him even deeper into depression. I answered the phone for my mom, which I usually tried to avoid. Um, And she begged me to please not have to bury both of her addict sons in the same year. Like, okay, I just have to make it to November because then I could die in the following year. At his worst point, Zach says he was in psychosis for a number of months. Eventually, he was institutionalized. He cycled through different treatment programs at the VA. That's the Department of Veterans Affairs. It's charged with providing lifelong health care to military veterans. And Zach ultimately managed to get sober. 
and he found a new job. But the thoughts of suicide still wouldn't go away. And then one day, he's scrolling. I saw on social media uh, a guy that had been one of my Marines, one of of our Raiders, and he's laughing and smiling and playing with his kids. And uh, that's not the guy that I knew. (laughs) The guy that I knew was a killer, and he was always super serious, and just this, again, he wore it on his face. And so it was a night and day difference from what I had experienced before. And, And I called him. I just picked up my phone, and I said, hey, man, like, what's your secret? Like, I need help. And his three-word answer was, plant medicine, man. I'm Catherine Rowland, and this is Seeking. Psychedelics are not a cure-all, but for some, they are a valuable therapeutic and spiritual tool that can help to heal our deepest wounds. Today, we hear from three vets who served after 9-11. They came home to a battle for their hearts and sanity, a battle that would take them from the VA to the Peruvian Amazon. There, they found the plant medicine that finally helped them, a treatment that their own government won't offer them. For this episode, we spoke to the three vets featured here, as well as a handful of others. We wanted to talk to veterans because they are at the forefront of today's psychedelic renaissance, and their stories underscore the therapeutic potential of psychedelics to address pains that cut deeper than most of us can imagine. It's not just about the trauma of service or the lack of supports to help vets once they return. There's also the fallout of our forever wars. The worry. Was it worth it? What was it all for? It's for these reasons that vets have been and are in crisis. The sky-high rates of depression, PTSD, addiction, suicide, housing insecurity, broken relationships, it's an open secret. But this is a story of desperation fueling change. That we're now seeing efforts around the country to decriminalize psychedelics is thanks in part to veterans' advocacy. As of March 2023, psychedelic bills have been proposed or considered in 22 states, including in places where you least expect it, like Texas and Missouri, because there, vets have been lobbying for help. That the federal government, through the VA, is alert to the value of certain psychedelics owes again to veterans' activism. It's increasingly hard for figures in power to extol the men and women fighting for our freedoms and then deny them access to promising therapies. Because here, at last, are tools that appear to offer hope and healing. So we wanted to look at what it is for some of the most wounded among us to address the root of pain. To me, it seems there is something radical here, radical even beyond the healing of trauma. And that is the possibility that inner peace might help us to rethink the necessity of political violence. Could psychedelics help our culture nurture warriors of a different stripe? When Zach got that message from a fellow Marine on social media, it changed his life. He became part of a remarkable healing network that connects vets to psychedelic healing opportunities that are not legal or readily available in the States. That's something that Zach and a lot of vets need. Here's Zach again. We as a species, we're we're 
built to operate in an activated state for really brief periods for survival purposes. And if you're going on continuous patrols, so every day you have to get up and walk in the space where you might get hit with an IED, you're stuck in that activated state, and that does something to you. Eventually, your system is overwhelmed. The scars that vets bring home are psychic as they are physical. Since 9-11, more than 30,000 vets have committed suicide. These are losses of life that dwarf the tragedies of the battlefield. After participating in wars that were controversial, protracted, and without clear conclusions, many vets have a hard time making sense of the sacrifice and violence they'd experienced. The atmosphere right after 9-11, this excitement, well, that was the parades and fanfare, and we're the military, and yay, and the, the, the hoorah, all the stuff, and that's the inner conflict for me now because I bought into all that. Or else they'd been at war for so long that they didn't know who they were anymore once they stopped being soldiers. After all, living in a war zone shapes your brain and your behavior, and the return to civilian life can be an incredible shock to the system. You are essentially, from basic training onwards, rewiring your brain. This is Jesse Gould, a former Marine Ranger who now heads a nonprofit that sends hundreds of veterans, including Zach, on ayahuasca healing retreats. It's called the Heroic Hearts Project. You become a very effective soldier. You just have to endure lack of food, lack of sleep. I was in during the winter. If they take every single comfort, even comforts you don't know you have, away from you, are you still able to move forward? Are you still able to lead and make effective decisions? And that's the whole point is like, if you're falling asleep while you're walking, if you're starving, uh, if you're just shivering, can you still lead a group of individuals and relatively speaking, do a mission fairly well. I want to rewind here to the early 2000s before Heroic Hearts was even a seed of an idea. Jesse was a through-and-through soldier, a straight and narrow guy. I'd never done psychedelics. I always had that same sort of viewpoint of it, of, you know, like it was didn't mean anything. It was just people's finding false profundity in... in weird stuff or like change in perception, you know, always viewed as a drug, you know, a a lifelong dare kid. Dare, as in the don't do drugs folks who give presentations at schools. Jesse grew up in Florida and studied economics at Cornell. When he enlisted straight out of college, it was a shock to his family, but he saw it as a way to do something greater, to make his mark on the world. He deployed three times and he thrived in the field so much so that he tried to sign up for another round. I think I was probably the only ranger that wrote, like, a multi-page essay trying to convince my platoon sergeant to send me overseas. But when he was assigned a desk job in Washington, Jesse left the military and returned to civilian life. Like Zach, Jesse found that he had been trained to manage every dire situation imaginable, except for the trauma of return. We become a very effective unit of a squad, but then when that's taken away or when you get out of the military, there's no rewiring back to civilian life. So what was it to come home after all of this? And and what life did you settle into after you concluded your service? You know, when I was getting out, I was like, all right, well, this is the next phase. I thought I was going to hit the ground running. You know, I had the economics background and the ranger. And, you know, I had that, like, a little bit of ego boost from, you know, what I had accomplished. And, like, what can touch me? You know, I'm ready to conquer the world. 
Jesse got a job working in finance in Florida, but was soon swamped by his new circumstances. He struggled with debt. He was out of shape. When you have to wake up for work and you need a beer just to, like, settle your nerves uh, before that, or you show up really hungover, it starts to (laughs) indicate some problems. In the military, his purpose had been clear. But in corporate America, working his ass off for the bottom line, that didn't feel like the greater mission. I'd be in this depressive state, and I'd just be sitting on my couch, and, like, everything was gray. Couldn't even listen to music, couldn't even watch Netflix, you know. And then my choices were I could either just stare at the ceiling all night or just drink until I fell asleep from drinking too much. It was a desperate situation. But, you know, he's a soldier. He's trained to not give up, so he takes the natural next step and he tries to get help from the VA. Took the VA two years to get back to me, to even evaluate my disability. Then my whole evaluation, body and mental health, took the entirety of 45 minutes. Like, are you angry? Uh, Do you have trouble sleeping sometimes? Do you have bad dreams? And, you know, I was like, well, yeah, I'm angry, but, you know, like, what's the context, you know? So, like, it just kind of all seemed kind of bullshitty to me. So just so I can get this straight, you appealed to the VA. You were essentially waitlisted for two years, which is just, you know, my jaw is dropping when I, I hear you say that. The diagnosis of PTSD that he eventually received felt like little more than a rubber stamp. I was starting to just not trust the VA just because PTSD, like I understood it, but it just seemed like a, an easy sort of like you have this because you're having some sort of struggle without giving me any real clear answers or path to move forward. Zach had a similar experience when he turned to the VA for help with addiction and depression. The aid he was offered came in the form of pills that merely papered over the source of his suffering. It wasn't a healing model. At one point, I was over. It was, there were more than thirty, uh, more than thirty pills a day. I was numb. It became clear to me on it was Memorial Day. I like to set aside some time on Memorial Day to go and just be by myself and, and call to mind my peers and colleagues and friends that I've lost. And I did, and nothing was happening. There were no tears. There was no. There was no sadness. There was no. I'm like, man, like, I'm just not feeling. Well, yeah, when you're numb, you don't have your low lows, but you don't have your high highs either. And what is a life without, without joy? Jesse was also offered prescription drugs, but he wasn't interested. He describes himself as someone who doesn't even take cold medicine. The choice offered to me was, like, you can have three to four therapy sessions and <laughs> that's, that's about it, which is, if anybody knows therapy, that's a very pointless sort of endeavor. So how did ayahuasca get on Jesse's radar? From the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. The way I describe DMT is it's like mushrooms times a million plus aliens. Yeah. Yeah. And that it just it <laughs> seems so titanically bizarre. In this odd way, it appealed to him. In much the same way the military had. It was a challenge. It was physically and mentally arduous, and it would show him what he was made of. So Jesse does something drastic. I just knew that the bubble I'd created for myself in Tampa was just going to, like, eat my soul. I have no problem throwing this chapter away, so let's move on to the next. So I pretty much 
like left my job, packed everything up, and just bought a one-way ticket to Peru. What Jesse discovered there would change his life and the lives of hundreds of other veterans. That's after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. You're in the middle of the jungle, and if you've never been into the Amazon or any similar jungle, it's just, it's loud. It's just this loud, pulsating, almost living thing, because essentially everything, every square inch, there is a living thing. And it's just cicadas, it's bugs, it's birds, it's monkeys howling. Jesse made his way to an ayahuasca retreat in the Amazon in eastern Peru. He sat in ceremonies much like what Rob and I visited, led by seasoned maestros. Can you, can you talk a bit about that experience? What was, how, you'd never taken psychedelics before and then you sit in an ayahuasca circle. What, what happened? The healers are kind of at the focal point. You know, they come in, there's a candle in the middle because it's pitch black. Everybody has their own little mattress. You have your bucket, which is for you to puke in. And so you go in and they do the prayer, they guide everybody. It was overwhelming at first, facing his fears and traumas, the emotions that trailed him on and off the battlefield. Towards the beginning, it was just me, like, struggling for dear life. It was almost like balancing, you know, like standing up in, like, a canoe or something. Like, for a while, I had that balance, but then you, like, lose focus, and then all of a sudden you're, like, toppling over again. But eventually, Jesse gets this message. I was just exhausted, and... Out of nowhere, this, like, blue hand pulled in and reached me through this, like, plant portal. And as crazy as it sounds, I went from, like, sweating and, like, not being able to sit still and, like, all this nervous energy to instantly calm, to feeling a cool breeze. My heart rate was immediately down, and I was just, like, in my vision, just, like, this cool, chill, like, cafe. And it showed me of, like... Why are you struggling so much? Like, you can do this. Before, it felt like these different parts of my brain, these warring states just were, like, fighting and couldn't get along. Whereas afterwards, it was like, oh, this is what the Jesse brain feels like. This is what to have a brain that is not out to get me feels like. And then that was just a very beautiful experience. I admit... I'd anticipated that the vets I spoke to for this episode would drink ayahuasca and come away as pacifists, that they'd renounce the soldiering life. But that really was not the case. For some, ayahuasca reaffirmed the drives and desires that had led them to the military in the first place. I do think certain people are built to be warriors. And in my mind, that more often than not is a noble role, just as much as a healer is a noble role, as much as a teacher in their own, you know, sort of lanes. Like, we need that, and they are in some ways 
giving up their time and knowledge to help out others. Jesse, he found new meaning in the role of warrior. It just felt like I was where I was supposed to be, like everything was in alignment there. I really wasn't living up to what it actually meant to be a warrior or a ranger. I was bastardizing it, right? Like, I was out of shape. I was not planning for the situation. I was kind of approaching life stupidly, you know? And so none of those are values of what it actually is, of what that warrior spirit. So coming back to connectivity was sort of bringing me back to that of like, hey, this is where you need to stay. In the weeks afterwards, Jesse felt as though he was returning to himself, and he wanted to broadcast this experience. His fellow vets were suffering, and here he'd found this treatment. It was unlikely and unconventional, but it had given him new hope. So he starts building a nonprofit to connect vets to ayahuasca. There was no network. He built one by word of mouth. Through emails and phone calls, donations that arrived in $10 increments, And within two months, he sent his first group of vets on an ayahuasca retreat. That was in 2017. There was clearly a need. Soon, Heroic Hearts was sending roughly 10 veterans a month to the Amazon to work with local healers and facilitators trained to address the needs of their community. And as those men and women returned to the States, they spread the word. Which brings us back to Zach. Zach attended his first Heroic Hearts retreat in 2020. During the the ceremonies themselves, I felt like I was being beaten with a baseball bat, physically and emotionally. During my worst night, I I think the the, the shaman's wife sat next to me, held my hand and sang the akados into my ear for three or four hours, just as I cried or screamed or whatever needed to happen. But at the end of it, I felt like sounds were louder and colors were brighter. I really felt like a different person. As Zach recounted his experience, he seemed close to tears. And it wasn't just the actual experience of ayahuasca that affected him. It was the camaraderie of the group. Back when he was in a war zone, he'd felt a deep connection to the soldiers around him. They'd relied on one another for survival. Now, in the jungle, that feeling of connection was happening in a new setting. This time, instead of survival, it was a group of men helping one another on a mission of shared healing. I was incredibly fortunate to be with just some of the toughest guys I could have imagined being with. That made me feel like, for the first time that I could remember, I'm safe here. I can let down all of my defenses and go as deep as I need to go because these guys have me or we have each other. And um, that was a really meaningful thing. Zach says the experience saved his life. When you got back down to Zach, as you you said, did that feel like a sense of immediate recognition, like a long sat after homecoming? You knew that this was you stripped of these other qualities? No, this is a, this is a, McDonald's menu journey of whatever. I don't want to go totally existential, like, oh, who am I, or whatever. But it was a, what am I, what's my purpose? What am I here for? And I was lucky that the answer to that came pretty quickly, that you know, my, my personal purpose is to help people find a better way to heal, whatever that might mean for them. And it 
might mean plant medicine for some. It might mean community or talk or nutrition or meditation or mindfulness or all these other things for other people. But they need to know. Someone needs to be able to show them or tell them that there's another alternative out there to the bucket of pills that you're being handed. Zach has since joined the organization as director of operations. His mission now is to show veterans that healing is possible. I, I try to use cautious words with the veterans that sign up for our program so that it's not a, it's not a panacea. It doesn't heal everything, but it can remove this, this weight and this pain and this darkness from you. Word of vets finding healing in ayahuasca continued to spread, and among those it reached was Fei-Fei Chen. Fei-Fei deployed to Iraq after 9-11 and struggled for years after she came home. When I was going to the retreat with Hero Cards, my number one intention was to heal my body from this constant pain and agony. Fei-Fei went through the ordeals of military service in return. And on top of that was dealing with the trauma of sexual assault. Her body was in revolt. We've spoken a lot on this show about the promise of psychedelics to help heal the mind, but perhaps at the risk of losing sight of the way mind and body are inseparable. Transgressions can live on like a live wire beneath the skin. The body keeps the score, as Bessel van der Kolk has so poignantly reminded us. Fei-Fei turned to ayahuasca in the hopes that it might help her come home to herself. Fei-Fei had always been a bit of a seeker, someone looking for adventure, meaning, connection. I knew I didn't want to live just an ordinary life. She was born in Hunan province in southern China and became a U.S. citizen at 16. A year later, when recruiters showed up at her high school, she was taken by what they seemed to represent. At this point, 9-11 had just happened. I knew sort of like for sure something as big is going to happen. But I also, I think I glamorized it in a way that, oh, this will be glorious. You know, if I die, I die for the country, it will be a glorious death. So Fei-Fei signed up and entered basic training right out of high school. She carried so much hope and aspiration into this decision. But during basic training, she was sexually assaulted. This sort of violation is dismally common, but that fact doesn't make it any easier to bear. Roughly 20,000 cases of sexual assault occur every year in the military. Only around a third of these cases are reported and charges are vanishingly rare. The same qualities that make for tough soldiers, power and prowess, emotions tucked away, the ability to blank out the human behind another naked set of eyes, can also make for an extremely toxic workplace. Fei-Fei didn't talk to anyone about her experience for 10 years. We are taught to be strong. We're taught to be tough and go out there and do our jobs. We're not taught to open up to talk about our emotions. We're not taught to be completely transparent, honest, with the shadow side of ourselves and the shadow side of the military. Well, you said you sort of shut down and continued to kind of suffocate that experience. 
what was it to carry that trauma into the field? Mm -hmm. Just extreme suppression. Just compartmentalize it and say, I. at first it was denial. You know, denial is like, that never happened to me. That could never happen to me. From the jump, Feifei's experience of the military seemed to train her to divorce herself from her body. You don't talk about being assaulted. You train yourself to ignore pain, emotional and physical. The basic training we received didn't give us the tools to integrate these difficult experiences. It taught us how to compartmentalize and to suppress and to numb. For her basic training graduation assignment, Feifei, along with her unit, had to complete a 20-mile march while carrying a 60-pound pack. At the time, I had an injury. So I injured my um, my shin splits and stress fracture and fell and twisted my ankle. So I was on crutches at the time. And I had trouble walking. But I went to the doctors, and the doctor gave me painkillers. So I started taking them, and I noticed that I cannot feel my legs. I couldn't feel it. So that was great. So I took those pills so I wouldn't have to feel anything. And I did the 20-mile march anyway. Didn't even need crutches. You know, and this is so painful, is that in the context of this kind of rampant harassment or fear of unwanted touch, you are put in a position of being physically hurt, and then the system is responding to that by providing you with highly addictive pain medications. Yes, to numb yourself. After basic training, she deployed to Iraq. It was 2003. It was a harsh, desert environment, just sand, and they built their camp from the ground up. I slept on a cart, a little narrow cart in a tent, and I had another roommate. She sleeps on the other side of the tent. I had my M16 on my cart wrapped up. That's how I sleep, this narrow little cart, and I slept on that cart for almost a year. Right outside the tent to my left, there's a big generator. That generator fires up every morning between 1 to 3 a.m. because enemy bomb comes in and knock off our electricity all the time. So that gets fired up. Her sense of personal hazard was magnified by the constant threats and stressors of living in the field. Bombs regularly hit the base. Explosives rutted the roads. The radio issued a relentless ticker of peril. One day, a sergeant showed her pictures of his five-year-old over lunch. The next day, he's killed. There were choppers roaring overhead while she showered outdoors and exposed. At one point, Feifei broke her wrist in self-defense on the base. And again, she was plied with drugs. And I started taking them, and I created a dependency of wanting to have a substance to numb my pain, not just physical pain this time, emotional pain, psychological pain, pain and fear, and being scared at night, not knowing, not knowing who's going to come close to my bed and try to, try to grab me in some kind of way. Feifei saw out her tour. She completed one deployment, but left before her contract was up. It was a four-year contract. I left, and 
knowing that my dream sort of destroyed because my initially my dream was that I want to be in the military and achieve this ideal of excellence and you know see where that would take me but seeing what I saw I felt disappointed in seeing how women were being treated and this sense of hierarchy just didn't want to be part of that. The nature of war is very cruel. I saw a lot of cruelty. She was just 20 years old when she returned. But the routines of her age mates, school, work, socializing, they all felt impossible. For years, she struggled. She was dogged by the temptation to numb it all. But like Zach and Jesse, her instinct for self-preservation bore out. Eventually, she went to college. And that's where she realized that psychedelics held some kind of magic for her. The first time I did psilocybin mushroom, I was a junior in college, unplanned, sort of walked into it at a house party. I remember walking out into the field looking at stars and looking at trees and looking at things in nature and started to have this um, telepathic conversation with nature and felt this sense of inner peace, like everything's working fine, everything is okay. And I felt this sense of calm and peacefulness that I never felt before. And it gave me a sense of curiosity to research, to read up on everything, to know what it is. She graduated from college and found a further sense of peace with Chinese medicine and yoga. But still, there was the physical pain, disconnection from her own body. I didn't like the part of my body that was violated and assaulted. So I rejected it so harshly. And I didn't allow myself to have pleasure. I didn't allow myself to feel good. Physically, she continued to ache and flare. But in 2021, she learned about heroic hearts and got on the list to attend a retreat in Peru. She begins to prepare. For two weeks, Fei-Fei eliminated sugar, salt, spicy foods from her diet. She was celibate, and she avoided reading negative news or listening to any music that was aggressive. And then to Peru, and her ayahuasca journey begins. It's very, very intense. It could go on anywhere from six to eight hours, sometimes even longer. I felt I could sit there for hours and hours. I could sit like this forever until the day I die. What was that like inside your body to sort of dive deep into your own memories and trauma and also to sit in a room where vibrationally or energetically, I must imagine, is yeah. those sort of storms of the psyche taking place. She starts to feel it working through her body. I just felt this unexplained warmth and, and, and joy in my body, just coursing through my body. And that gave me great sense of freedom and relief from a lot of deep emotional trauma that I held from childhood. Sense of abandonment, physical abuse, sexual assault, you know, like loss, grief, 
so many things like all bundled up and what ayahuasca showed me is that your body is already perfect it's a perfect instrument if you decide to use it uh, if you decide to take care of it the body is not the enemy i mean what a what a beautiful miraculous experience Listening to Zach, Jesse, and Feifei all recount their experiences, it seemed that ayahuasca helped them reset themselves, their brains and their bodies, so they could leave the sense of constant peril and finally find some peace. Just like Jesse and Zach, Feifei has also come away transformed, committed to spreading the word, to connecting fellow vets to healing. What all of them are doing is rare. There are risks involved in taking a public stand for the therapeutic value of an illegal substance. But they're also responding in the most genuine way to the needs of a population that has been deeply underserved. And isn't that ultimately the obligation of revelation? Once you've been graced by a healing experience, how could you ethically keep that to yourself? And so here are these brave folks, call by call, retreat by retreat, reaching people who felt they'd reached an end and showing them a way forward. We are all interconnected in some way. We are connected through our shared collective suffering, through our shared joy and desire to have peace and wanting to have um, a good life for our family and want to contribute to some kind of greater good, we are all not separate in the blanket of <laughs> consciousness. When Jesse and I spoke in the summer of 2022, there were more than 1,000 vets on the wait list to participate in a Heroic Hearts retreat. Other organizations have also emerged to connect former service men and women to psychedelic healing. But the appetite and the urgency far outpace what's available. For now, this all stands to change soon. The VA, perhaps the most unlikely supporter, is now participating in at least five clinical trials looking at MDMA and psilocybin for veterans with PTSD, anxiety, addiction, and other mental health issues. It's a watershed moment in embracing new ways to reset harmful patterns of thought and behavior. The mainstream drugs aren't working, and this population deserves more, better. Around the country, vets have come together with politicians from both sides of the aisle to push for decriminalization of certain psychedelics because the toll of suffering, always too great, is no longer something the figures in power can ignore. These realities have not led our country to rethink the rationale of war itself, but they have opened a new conversation about what it means to be a warrior. I see myself as a peaceful warrior. There's certainly I didn't give up that training to be tough, to be resilient, a desire to serve all of that loyalty. It's still all in me. Next week, we continue the discussion of psychedelics and the search for healing. We talk to the award-winning journalist Gabriel Mack about trauma, transitioning, 
in pursuing truth, no matter the cost. Seeking is written and reported by me, Katherine Rowland. Rob Dozier produced this episode with help from Louisa Tucker. Erica Gajda and Lily Thompson are our associate producers. Sound design by India Witkin and Hamza Umerji. Grant Irving edited this episode. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajisaka. Music by Nolan Schneider. Mixing by Sam Baer. Thanks to our legal team, Rachel Goldberg and Allison Sherry. And special thanks to Megan Dietrich.